A Little Princess, Chapter 16 Imagine, if you can, what the rest of the evening was like. How they crouched by the fire, which blazed and leaped and made so much of itself in the little grate. How they removed the covers of the dishes and found rich, hot, savory soup, which was a meal in itself, and sandwiches and toasts and muffins enough for both of them. The mug from the washstand was used as Becky's teacup, and the tea was so delicious that it was not necessary to pretend that it was anything else but tea. They were warm and full-fed and happy, and it was just like Sarah that, having found her strange good fortune real, she should give herself up to the enjoyment of it to the utmost. She had lived such a life of imaginings that she had quite equal to accepting any wonderful thing that happened, and almost to seize in a short time to find it bewildering. I don't know anyone in the world who could have done it, she said, but there has been someone, and here we are sitting by their fire. And, and it's true, and whoever it is, whoever they are, I have a friend, Becky. Someone is my friend. It cannot be denied, as they sat by the blazing fire and ate the nourishing, comfortable food, that they felt a kind of rapturous awe and looked into each other's eyes with something like about. Do you think, Becky <clears throat> faltered once in a whisper, do you think it could melt away, miss? Hadn't we... Better be quick, and she hastily crammed a sandwich into her mouth. It was only a dream. If it was a dream, kitchen manners would be overlooked. No, it won't melt away, said the little girl. I'm eating this muffin and I can taste it. You never really eat things in dreams. You only think you're going to eat them. Besides, I keep giving myself pinches, and I touched a hot piece of coal just now on purpose. The sleepy comfort which at length almost overpowered them, was a heavenly thing. It was the drowsiness of happy, well-fed childhood, and they sat in the fire glow and luxuriated in it, in it <clears throat> until the little girl found herself turning to look at her transformed bed. There were even blankets, enough to share with Becky. The narrow couch in the next attic was more comfortable that night than its occupant had ever dreamed that it could be. As she went out the room, Becky turned upon the threshold and looked about her with devouring eyes. If it ain't here in the morning, miss, she said, it's been here tonight anyways, and I shan't ever forget it. She looked at each particular thing as if to commit to it to memory. The fire was there, pointing with her finger, and the table was before it, and the lamp was there, and the light looks rosy red, and... There was a satin cover on your bed and the warm rug on the floor and everything, everything looked beautiful. She paused a second and laid her hand on her stomach tenderly. There was soup and sandwiches and the muffins, there was. And with this conviction, a reality at least, she went away. Through the mysterious agency which works in schools and among servants, it was quite well known in the morning that the little girl was in a horrible disgrace that Emmergrad was under punishment and that Becky would have been packed out of the house before breakfast, but that her scullery maid could not be dispensed with at once. The servants knew that she was allowed to stay because Miss Minchin could not easily find another creature helpless and humble enough to work like a bounden slave for so few shillings a week. The elder girls in the schoolroom knew that if Miss Minchin did not send Sarah away, it was for practical reasons of her own. She's growing so fast and learning such a lot, somehow, said Jessie and Lavinia. 
that she will be giving classes soon and Miss Minchin knows she will have the work for nothing. It was rather nasty of you, Lavi, to tell about her having fun in the garret. How did you find out? I got it out of Lottie, she said. Such a baby, she didn't even know she was telling me. There was nothing nasty at all in speaking to Miss Minchin. I felt it as my duty, priggishly. She was being deceitful, and it's ridiculous that she should look so grand and be made so much fun of in her rags and tatters. What were they going to do when Miss Minchin caught them? Pretending something silly? Emmergrad had taken up the hamper to share with Sarah and Becky. She never invites us to share things. Not that I care, but it's rather vulgar of her to share with servant girls in attics and not us. I wonder if Miss Minchin didn't turn Sarah out if she doesn't want her to be a teacher. If she was turned out, where would she go? Inquired Jessie in a terrified, anxious manner. How do I know? Snapped Lavinia. She'll look rather queer when she comes into the schoolroom this morning, I should think, after what happened. She has no dinner yesterday, and she's not going to have any today. Jessie was not ill-natured as she was silly. She picked up her book with a little jerk. Well, I think it's still horrid, she said. They've no right to starve to death. When the little girl went to the kitchen that morning, the cook looked askance at her, and so did the housemaids, but she passed them hurriedly. She had, in fact, overslept herself a little, and as Becky had done the same, neither had time to see each other, and each had come downstairs in a haste. The little girl went to the scullery. Becky was violently scrubbing a kettle and was actually gurgling a little song in her throat. She looked up with a wildly elated face. It was there when I waked, Miss, the blanket, she whispered excitedly. It was a real one as it was last night. So was mine, said the little girl. It's all there now, all of it. While I was dressing, I ate some of the cold things we left. Oh, laws, oh, laws. Becky uttered an exclamation in a sort of rupturous groan and ducked her head over her kettle just in time as the cook came in from the kitchen. Miss Minchin had expected to see in Sarah when she appeared in the schoolroom very much what Lavinia had expected to see. The little girl had always been an annoying puzzle to her because Severia never made her cry or look frightened. When she was scolded, she stood still and listened politely with a grave face. When she was punished, she performed her extra tasks or went without her meals, making no complaint or outward sign of rebellion. The very fact that she never made an impudent answer seemed to Miss Minchin a kind of impudence itself. But after yesterday's deprivation of meals, the violent scene of last night, the prospect of hunger today, she must surely have broken down. It would be strange indeed if she did not come downstairs with the pale cheeks and red eyes and unhappy humbled face. Miss Minchin saw her for the first time when she entered the schoolroom to hear the little French class, its lessons and superintended exercises. And she came in with springing step, color in her cheeks and a smile hovering about her corner of her mouth. It was just the most astonishing thing Miss Minchin had ever known. It gave her quite a shock. What was the child made of? What could such a thing mean? She called her at once to her desk. You do not look as if you realize that you're in disgrace, she said. Are you absolutely hardened? The truth is that when one is still a child, or even if one is growing up, and has been well fed and has slept long and softly and warm, when one has gone to sleep in the midst of a fairy story and has wakened to find it real, one cannot be unhappy or even look as if one were. 
and one could not, if one tried, keep a glow of joy out of one's eyes. Miss Minchin was almost struck dumb by the look of the little girl's eyes when she lifted them and made her perfectly respectful answers. I beg your pardon, Miss Minchin, she said. I know that I am being a disgrace. Be good enough not to forget it and look as if you had come to a fortune. It is an impertinence. And remember, you have no food today. Yes, Miss Minchin, the little girl answered. But as she turned away, her heart leaped with the memory of what was yesterday had. If the magic had not saved me just in time, she thought, how horrible it would have been today. She can't be very hungry, whispered Lavinia. Just look at her. Perhaps she is in pretending she has a good breakfast and spiteful laughs ensued. She's different from other people, said Jessie, watching as the little girl went about her class. Sometimes I'm a bit frightened of her. A ridiculous thing, ejaculated Lavinia. All through the day, the light was in the little girl's face and the color in her cheek. The servants cast puzzled glances at her and whispered to each other, and Miss Amelia's small blue eyes wore an expression of bewilderment. What such an audacious look of well-being under August's displeasure could mean she could not understand. It was, however, just like the little girl's singular, obstinate way. She was probably determined to brave the matter out. One thing that the little girl had resolved upon was she thought things over. The wonders which had happened must be kept a secret if such a thing were possible. If Miss Minchin should choose to mount to the attic again, of course all the wonders would be discovered, but it did not seem likely that she would do so for the time at least. Unless she was led by suspicion, Emigrat and Lottie would be watched with such strictness that they would not dare stay out of the beds again. Emigrat could be told the story and trusted to keep it a secret. If Lottie made any discoveries, she could be bound to secrecy also. Perhaps magic itself would be helping to hide its own marvels. But whatever happens, the little girl kept saying to herself all day, whatever happens, somewhere in the world is a heavenly kind person who is my friend. My friend. If I never know who it is, if I never can even thank him, I shall never feel quite so lonely. Oh, the magic was so good to me. If it was possible for weather to be worse than it had been that day before, <clears throat> it was worse this day, wetter, muddier, colder. There were more errands to be done. The cook was more irritable. And knowing that the little girl was in disgrace, she was even more savage. But what does anything matter when one's magic has just proved itself one's friend? The little girl's supper of the night before had given her strength. She knew that she should sleep well and warmly. <clears throat> and even though she had naturally begun to be hungry again before evening, she felt that she could bear it until breakfast time on the following day, when her meals would surely be given to her again. It was quite late when she was last allowed to go upstairs. She had been told to go up into the schoolroom and study until 10 o'clock, and she had become interested in her work and remained over her books later. When she reached the top flights of the stairs, She stood before the attic door. It must be confessed that her heart beat faster than ever before. Of course, it might all have been taken away, she whispered, trying to be brave. It might only have been lent to me just for the one awful night. But it was lent to me. It had it. I had it. It was real after all. She pushed the door open and went in. Once inside, she gasped slightly. 
shut the door and stood with her back against it, looking from the inside, side to side. The magic had been there again. It actually had, and it had done even more than before. The fire was blazing, the lovely leaping flames were more merrily than ever. A number of new things had been brought into the attic, which so altered the look of it, that if she had not been past doubting, she would have rubbed her eyes again. Upon the low table another supper stood, this time with cups and plates for Becky as well as herself. A piece of bright heavy strange embroidery covered the battered mantle, and on it some ornaments had been placed. All of the bare ugly things which could be covered with draperies had been concealed and made to look quite pretty. Some odd materials of rich colors had been fastened against the wall with fine sharp tacks, so sharp that they could be pressed into the wood and plaster without hammering. Some brilliant fans were pinned up and were several large cushions all around, big and substantial enough to use as seats. A wooden box was covered with a rug and some cushions lay on it so that it wore quite an air of a sofa. The little girl slowly moved away from the door and simply sat down and looked and looked again. It is exactly like something a fairy could come true, she said. There isn't the least difference. I feel as if I might wish for anything, diamonds or bags of gold or a Burberry coat, and they would just appear. That wouldn't be any stranger than this. This isn't my garret? Am I the same cold, ragged, damp little girl? And to think I used to pretend and pretend and wish there was fairies. The one thing I always wanted to see was a fairy story come true. I am living in a fairy story. I feel as if I might be a fairy myself and be able to turn things into anything else. She rose and knocked upon the wall for the prisoner in the next cell, and the prisoner came. When she entered, she almost dropped in a heap upon the floor. For a few seconds, she quite lost her breath. Oh, laws, she gasped. Oh, laws, miss, just as she had done in the scullery. You see, said the little girl. On this night, Becky sat on a cushion upon the hearth rug and had a cup and saucer of her own. When the little girl went to bed, she found that she had a new thick mattress and big downy pillows. Her old mattress and pillow had been removed to Becky's bedstead, and consequently, with these additions, Becky had been slipped with unheard of comfort. Where does it all come from? Becky broke before once. Laws, who does it, I miss? Don't let us even ask, said the little girl. If it were not that I want to say, oh, thank you, I would rather not know. It makes it more beautiful. From that time, life became more wonderful day by day. The fairy story continued. Almost every day something new was done. Some new comfort or ornament had appeared each time the little girl opened the door at night. Until in short time, the attic was beautiful, like a beautiful little room full of sorts of odd and luxurious things. The ugly walls were gradually entirely covered with pictures and draperies Ingenious pieces of folding furniture appeared. A bookshelf was hung up on the field with books. New comforts and conveniences appeared one by one until there seemed nothing left to be desired. When the little girl went downstairs in the morning, the remains of a supper were there at the table. When she returned in the attic in the evening, the magician had removed them and left another nice little meal. Miss Minchin was in such a harsh and insulting manner as ever. Miss Amelia was as peevish, and the servants were vulgar and rude. 
The little girl was sent on errands in all weathers and scolded and driven hither and thither. She was scarcely allowed to speak to the emigrad or Lottie. Lavinia sneered at the increasing shabbiness of her clothes, and the other girls stared curiously at her when she appeared in the schoolroom. But what did it all matter when she is living <clears throat> in a wonderfully mysterious story? It was more romantic and delightful than anything had ever been invented to comfort her starved young soul and save herself from despair. Sometimes, when she was scolded, she would scarcely keep from smiling. If you only knew, she was saying to herself, if you only knew. The comfort and happiness she enjoyed were making her stronger, and she had them always to look forward to. If she came home from her errands wet and tired and hungry, she knew she would soon be warm and well-fed after she climbed the stairs. During the hardest days, she could occupy herself blissfully by thinking of what she should see when she opened that attic door, and wondering new, what new delight had been prepared for her. In a very short time, she began to look less thin. Color came into her cheeks and her eyes did not seem so much too big for her face. Sarah Crewe looks wonderfully well, Miss Minchin remarked disapprovingly of her sister. Yes, answered poorly, the little Miss Amelia. She is absolutely fattening. She was beginning to look like a little starved crow. Starved, exclaimed Miss Amelia angrily. There was no reason why she should look so starved. She's always had plenty to eat. Of course, Miss Amelia said humbly again alarmed to find that she had, as usual, said the wrong thing. There is something very disagreeable in seeing that sort of thing in a child of her age, said Miss Minchin, with a naughty, haughty vagueness. What sort of thing, Miss Amelia ventured? It might almost be called defiance, answered Miss Minchin, feeling annoyed because she knew the thing she resented was nothing like defiance, and she did not know <clears throat> anything other more unpleasant term to use. The spirit of will of any other child would have been entirely humbled and broken by, by the changes that she had submitted to. But upon my word, she seems like a little subdued as if, as if she were a princess. Do you remember, put in the unwise Miss Amelia, what she said to you that day in the schoolroom about <clears throat> what you would do if she found out that she was? No, I don't, said Miss Minchin. I don't talk nonsense. But she remembered very, very clearly indeed. Very naturally, even Becky was beginning to look plumber and less frightened. She could not help it. She had her share in the secret fairy story too. She had two mattresses, two pillows, plenty of bed coverings, and every night a hot supper and a seat of cushions to be sitting by the fire. The Bastille had melted away. The prisoners no longer existed. Two comforted children sat in the midst of delights. Sometimes the little girl read aloud from her books. Sometimes she learned her own lessons. Sometimes she sat and looked into the fire and tried to imagine who her friend could be and wished she could say to him some of the nice things in her heart. Then it came about that another wonderful thing happened. A man came to the door and left several parcels. All were addressed in large letters to the little girl in the right-hand attic. The little girl herself was sent to open the door and took them in. She laid the two largest parcels in the hall table and was looking at the address when Miss Minchin came down the stairs and saw them. Take these things to this young lady whom they belong, she said severely. Don't stand there staring at them. 
Well, they belong to me, said the little girl quietly. To you, exclaimed Miss Minchin. What do you mean? I don't know where they come from, said the little girl, but they are addressed to me. I sleep in the right-hand attic. Becky has the other one. Miss Minchin came to her side, looked at the parcels with excited expression. What is it in them? She demanded. I do not know, said the little girl. Then open them, she ordered. The little girl did as she was told. When the packages were unfolded, Miss Minchin's countenance wore suddenly a singular expression. What she saw was pretty and comfortable clothing, clothing of different kinds, shoes, stockings, and gloves, and a warm, beautiful coat, perhaps a Burberry coat. There were even nice hats and an umbrella. There were all good and expensive things, and on the pocket of these coats was a pinned paper on which the written words said, to be worn every day, will be replaced by others when necessary. Miss Minchin was quite agitated. This was an incident which suggested strange things to her sordid mind. Could it be that she had made a mistake after all, and that this neglected child had some powerful, though eccentric, friend in the background? Perhaps some previously unknown relation who had suddenly traced her whereabouts and chose to provide for her in this mysterious, fantastic way. Relations were sometimes very odd, particularly rich old bachelor uncles, well, <laughs> who did not care for having children near them. A man of that sort might prefer to overlook this young relation's welfare at a distance. Such a person, however, would be sure to be crotchety and hot-tempered enough to be easily offended. It would not be very pleasant if there were such a one, and he should learn all the truths about the thin, shabby clothes, the scant food, and the hard work. She felt very queer indeed, and very uncertain, and she gave a side glance at the little girl. Well, she said, in a voice such as she had never used since the little girl lost her father, someone is very kind to you, and the things have been sent, all of those, you are to have new ones, if they're worn out. You may as well go put and try them on and look respectable. After you are dressed, you may come downstairs and learn your lessons in the schoolroom. You need not now go out any more errands today. About half an hour afterwards, when the schoolroom door opened and the little girl walked in, the entire seminary was struck dumb with amazement. My word, ejaculated Jesse, jogging Lavinia's elbow. Well, look at the Princess Sarah. Everybody was looking, and when Lavinia looked, she turned quite red. It was the Princess Sarah indeed. At least, since the days when she had been a princess, the little girl had never looked as she did now. She did not seem like the little girl they had seen come down the black stairs a few hours ago. She was dressed in the kind of frock Lavinia had been used to envying her possession of. It was deep and warm in color and beautifully made. Her slender feet looked as if they had done when Jessie had admired them, and the hair, whose heavy locks had made her look rather like a Shetland pony when it fell loose about her small, odd face, was tied back with a ribbon. Perhaps some of that was left in a fortune, Jessie whispered. I always thought something would happen to her. She's so queer. Perhaps the diamond mines have suddenly appeared again, said Lavinia scathingly. Don't plead, sir, by staring at her in that way, you silly little thing. Sarah, broke in Miss Minchin's deep voice, come and sit here. 
And while the whole schoolroom stared and pushed with elbows and scarcely made any effort to conceal its excited curiosity, the little girl went to her old seat of honor and bent her head over her books. That night, when she went to her room after she and Becky had eaten their supper, she sat and looked at the fire seriously for a long time. Are you making something up in your head, miss? Becky inquired with respectful softness. When the little girl sat in silence and looked into the coals with dreaming eyes, it generally meant that she was making a new story. But this time she was not, and she shook her head. No, she answered. I am wondering what I ought to do. Becky stared still respectfully. She was filled with something approaching reverence for everything the little girl did and said. I can't help thinking about my friend, the little girl explained. If he wants to keep himself secret, it would be rude to try and find out who he is, but I do so want him to know how thankful I am of him and how happy he has made me. Anyone who is this kind wants to know when people have been made happy. They care for that more than anything else, more than being thanked. I wish and I so do wish. She stopped short because her eyes at this instant fell upon something standing on a table in a corner. It was something that she found in the room when she came up to it, only two days before. It was a little writing case fitted with paper and envelopes and pens and ink. Oh, she exclaimed, why did I not think of that before? She rose and went to the corner and brought the case back to the fire. I can write to him, she said joyfully, and leave it on the table. Then perhaps the person who takes the things away will take it too. I won't ask him anything. He won't mind me thanking him, I feel sure. So she wrote a note, and this is what it said. I hope you will not think it is impolite that I should write this note for you when you wish to keep yourself a secret. Please believe I do not mean to be impolite or try to find anything out at all. Only I want to thank you for being so kind to me, so heavenly kind, and making everything like a fairy story. I am so grateful to you, and I am so happy, and so is Becky. Becky feels just as thankful as I do. It is all just as beautiful and wonderful to her as it is to me. We used to be so lonely and cold and hungry, and now, oh, I just think what you have done for us. Please let me say just these words. It seems as if I ought to say them. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The little girl in the attic. The next morning, she left this note on the little table. In the evening, it had been taken away with the other things, so she knew that the magician had received it, and she was happier for the thought. She was reading one of her new books to Becky just before they went to their respective beds when her attention was attracted by a sound of the skylight. When she looked up from her page, she saw that Becky had heard the sound also, and she had turned her head to look and was listening rather nervously. Something's there, miss, she whispered. Yes, said the little girl slowly. It sounds rather like a cat trying to get in. She left her chair and went to the skylight. It was a queer sound, she heard, like a soft scratching. She suddenly remembered something and laughed. She remembered a quaint little intruder who had made his way into the attic once before. She had seen him that very afternoon sitting disconsolately on a table before a window in the Indian gentleman's house. Suppose, she whispered in pleased excitement, just suppose it was the monkey who had gotten away again. Oh, I wish it was. She climbed in a chair very cautiously, raised the skylight and peeped out. It had been snowing all day and on the snow quite near her crouched a tiny shivering figure whose small black face wrinkled itself piteously at the sight of her. 
It is the monkey, she cried out. He has crept out of Lascar's attic, and he saw the light. Becky ran to her side. Are you going to let him in, miss, she said. Yes, the little girl answered joyfully. It's too cold for monkeys to be out. They're delicate. I'll coax him in. She put a hand out delicately, speaking in coaxing voices, as she spoke to the sparrows and to Melchizedek, as if she were some friendly little animal herself and lovingly understood their timid wilderness. Come along, monkey darling, she said. I won't hurt you. He knew she would not hurt him. He knew it before she laid her soft, caressing little paw on him, drew him towards her. He had felt human love in the slim brown hands of Ramdas, and he felt it in hers as well. He let her lift him through the skylight, and when he found himself in her arms, he cuddled up to her breast and took friendly hold of a piece of her hair, looking up into her face. Nice monkey, very nice monkey, she crooned, kissing his funny head. Oh, I do love a little animal. He was evidently glad to get to the fire, and when she sat down and held him on her knee, he looked from her to Becky with mingled interest and appreciation. He is plain looking, miss, ain't he? said Becky. He looks like a very ugly baby, laughed the little girl. I beg your pardon, monkey, but I am glad you are not a baby. Your mother, your mother couldn't be proud of you, and no one would dare say you look like any of your relations. Oh, I do like you, little monkey. She leaned back in her chair and reflected. Perhaps he's sorry he's so ugly, she said. And it's always on his mind. I wonder if he has a mind. Monkey, my love, have you got a mind? But the monkey only put up a tiny paw and scratched his head. What shall you do with him? Becky asked. I shall let him sleep with me tonight and then take him back to the Indian gentleman's house tomorrow. I'm sorry to take you back, monkey, but you must go. You ought to be fondest of your own family. I am not a real relation. And when she went to bed, she made him a nest at her feet and he curled up and slept there as if he were a baby and much pleased with his quarters.